This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. The hot question of the today for today is the uproar over former Prime Minister Kim Campbell's tweet. She originally tweeted she was rooting for Hurricane Dorian to hit Donald Trump's golf resort there, the Mar-a-Lago in Florida. A lot of people weighing in on whether that was appropriate or not. This morning, she deleted the tweet and apologized. Here's the question. Was Kim Campbell right to apologize? Would you say, yes, that was a distasteful joke to make? These hurricanes can be deadly. That is not very funny at all, so it's right to apologize. Or would you say, no, it was just a joke, and shes that's what she's saying. This is sarcasm. It's a joke. She didn't mean it to be serious. Are people... Do people overreact? Are we losing our sense of humor? At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find that hot question today. At CKNW on Twitter. It'll be interesting to see the results of this one. Give me a follow on Twitter while you're there, please, at Mike Smith News, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News. I'll retweet the hot question there so you can find it there, too. Also, phone me on the buzz line on that one today. Do you think Kim Campbell was right to apologize for that tweet about Trump's golf course and the hurricane? 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. The Simi Sarah Show continues with your host, Mike Smith. All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi today. If that music is taking you back it's because that is indeed the old cutting edge of the ledge theme we're doing it old school here we're kicking back to the days of cutting edge of the ledge with bill good and we got the cutting edge of the ledge panelists assembled we got vaughn palmer uh, columnist at the vancouver sun vaughn thanks for coming in There you go. Yeah, getting the band back together. Again. And we got Keith Baldry for c- coming in. Thanks, Keith. Hey, always great to be here. Like old times. This reminds me of a uh, a line from one of my favorite movies. We're putting the band back together. Forget it. No way. We're on a mission from God. <laughs> Not exactly on a mission from God, but we are putting the band back together. How long did you guys do Cutting Edge of the Ledge with uh, with Bill Good back in the day? I think it was about... 12 to 15 years every yeah. friday 10 to 11 uh, an hour-long show uh taking lots of calls we had regular callers sam from white rock was always there dave from the east end brian from powell river and john the philosopher king from hornby island yes and you you guys always enjoyed no i, I know i remember vaughn saying that was probably one of your highlights of the week always doing that segment it was huge fun, Mike, and one of the things that used to happen because of the calls and because we did it every week was if people used to play Stump the Panel. Like Stump you had panel, to yeah. have the Internet on and your database ready because people would phone in and ask the most amazing things. And if you were really stuck, Bill would cut to a commercial. But when you came back, you were expected to have the answer. And right. sometimes it didn't have a hell of a lot to do with B.C. politics, uh, but we had a lot of fun doing it. Okay, well, one of the great things about the segment is there's always a lot of raw material. You know, in BC politics, there's never a lack of uh, stuff going on, and this week is no exception. So let's get to the stuff that's going on here right now, guys. Vaughn, let's talk a little preview. Maybe you could set the table for us for this afternoon, 11 a.m. 
we're getting the provincial report in from John Horgan's public inquiry into gas prices. What are you expecting there? Well, this is uh, indeed at 11 o'clock, and if people want to follow what the announcement is, the uh, report itself will be posted on the BC Utilities Commission website at 11, and the BCUC has also set up live streaming of the press conference where the head of the commission is going to announce well, the We're going to have it live here on the show, too. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, look, the challenge here is that Horgan wanted... Why are gas prices fluctuating? Why are they high? Uh, going back to 2015, but he also ordered the commission to stay the hell away from any recommendations that would require changes in provincial taxation or regulation. Many of the submissions to the commission point out that provincial taxes, taxes on gasoline, which are among the highest in Canada, and provincial regulations which require special gasoline to be produced for the BC market are one of the things that drove up the price. So right. what can the commission say about that? Can it really ignore it? So it's almost like he's shielding himself from any scrutiny. Keith? Yeah, no, the, he, the terms of reference really shackled the, uh, the commission's ability to get to the bottom of uh, the, the ongoing mystery why gas costs the, what it does. Uh, more than one-third of the price of gas is due to uh, taxation. We pay more in taxes than pretty well any jurisdiction in Canada, particularly in Metro Vancouver because of the TransLink tax. Now, these are taxes that are dedicated revenue streams largely for transit and such, but as Vaughn points out, the added uh, addition of uh, specialized uh, uh, refining rules and the, the type of gasoline that actually is on the market in BC also drives up the price of gas. So I'm not expecting any miracles here from this, well, this inquiry, I, and it's not going to lead to a reduction in the price of gas. Well, do you remember at the start of this whole thing, Vaughn, Horgan said, the reason we got high gas prices here is don't look at me. Don't point the finger at me. This has got nothing to do with taxes. This is about gouging. This is about these this big oil, these big gas companies gouging people at the gas pump. Is there any chance at all that this report coming out in less than an hour now is going to point the finger at these gas companies and say, yeah, you guys are colluding. You are You are gouging people. Well, the head of the commission, David Morton, has already said he will not use the gouging word. He said that is up for the public to decide that. But one of the interesting things he might say is that there's a lot of evidence presented to the commission that one of the reasons prices are high here is because not as much gasoline is being sent through the existing pipeline right, as right. was being done four or five years ago. So, be in, And the premier says we need more gas in the pipeline. So it would be really interesting if the commission came along and said the premier's right, there are ways to get more gasoline through the pipeline, oh. and that needs to happen. Mm, yeah. It would take action by the federal government, the National Energy Board, and the industry to do that, but it okay. might address long-term shortages here. Okay, we're keeping our ears open for that. So just another quick heads up for you. That's coming up at the top of the hour, and we'll bring you live coverage of the release of that report from the public inquiry into gas prices. Let's shift gears a little bit here, guys, and talk about the looming federal election. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, back in B.C. yesterday, had an interesting uh, news conference with his very close buddy, Premier John Horgan. Here's a listen to that. Whenever I sit down with John, I'm reminded how much progress can be made for middle-class Canadians when forward-thinking governments work together. Thank you, John, for your leadership, your partnership, and your friendship. Over these past years, we've been able to work together. We've been able to get big things done for British Columbians and, indeed, uh, showed Canadians how things can be done when people work together. What a bromance here, Keith, as you called it. What's going on with these two? Yeah, well, these two basically are each other's best uh, political friends across the country. Justin Trudeau is surrounded by conservative premiers. 
uh, in almost every province. John Horgan likes what he gets from Trudeau in terms of the federal dollars that are flowing BC's way. Yesterday, a joint 50-50, $680 million announcement to electrify the oil and gas industry. You've got Trudeau stepping up to the plate for, for the Broadway subway line and other transit lines in Metro Vancouver. So these guys are best buds. And then again today, Trudeau was with Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, former NDP MP, who's also singing Trudeau's praises. This is an example, I think, of both these NDP politicians realizing their best bet is with Trudeau. And that's why they're not going to come out and say it, but they right. want they want Trudeau to be reelected in the fall. They have a good relationship yeah. with him. Call it a bromance. The guy who must be the most uncomfortable person is the guy who's up for nomination tonight in Burnaby South. That would be NDP leader Jugmeet Singh. This must just drive him crazy. He's like a third wheel on a... On a blind date here. What's going on? Vaughn? Well, British Columbia is going to be a battleground in this election. Uh, we already know there's a lot of writings in the province where there will be four political parties in play. And, look, from an NDP point of view, uh, you may want to wish to uh, support your national party. But you know that if the vote splits three ways, Andrew Scherer and the Conservatives could win seats here in the province with just a little over a third of the vote. And I think New Democrats look at it, a lot of them, and they go... No, you know, we don't want Cher, we don't want the Conservatives in Ottawa, so we're going to have to support right. Trudeau. That's right. the best chance we have of beating Cher. Yeah, I mean, the two parties, federally and provincially NDP, are constitutionally connected. I mean, they're kind of the same party, effectively. So I'm, I'm sure Cher, or, or Jugmeet Singh, probably doesn't like seeing Trudeau do these uh, cozy photo ops with, with Trudeau. On the other hand, the chance of Jugmeet Singh becoming the prime minister in this election is... Zero. Mm -hmm. There's only two people who are going to end up prime minister. It's going to be Trudeau or Andrew Scheer. And like you said, I mean, uh, Horgan and his government would like, they want Trudeau to get reelected. They would never admit that publicly, but that's what they want. Oh, I, I've talked to a number of New, New Democrats privately who say yes, exactly what they want. They fear a Scheer government. Uh, they don't think they get as much from Scheer as they would from, from Trudeau. And also philosophically and ideologically, I mean, there's just no, there's no connection between the NDP yeah. and Andrew Scheer. But there is a bit of connection between Trudeau, whom, again, praised B.C. for its carbon tax yesterday, right. which he wants to bring in nationally. So there's, there's um, some unanimity on, on a number of issues between Trudeau and the provincial NDP. But again, the NDP is no longer in opposition. They're now in government, and they view things differently than they did in opposition. They view they're, they're governing, and they need help to govern, and that means getting help from Ottawa. That means getting help from Trudeau. Okay, let's uh, talk about another big story this week, guys, and that was ride-hailing. Uh, Uber, the biggest ride-hailing company on the planet, making it official this week. They will apply for an operating license in British Columbia. This has been a, politically, a political hot potato here for years. Here's Michael Van Hemmen from Uber. Uh, the main requirements are, are that are you able to provide the service um, and provide it sustainably or, or are you kind of a, a fly-by-night kind of operator? Um, and, and then as well, is there a need for the service? And the answer to those two, two questions are absolutely. And then the third is what impact do you have on the general, on the overall industry? And, and the impact that we've seen is that ride-sharing continues to exist alongside taxi and limo everywhere else in the world. And uh, we expect that to, to happen here, here in BC as well. Vaughn, what are the politics of this ride-hailing right now? I, uh, judging from what the taxi industry is saying, and it has a lot of political clout in British Columbia, as we know, uh, the industry believed that their friends in the NDP government were going to make sure we weren't going to get ride-hailing in the province, and yeah. they're astonished, still picking themselves up off the floor, that <laughs> the, 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 the Passenger Transportation Board appointed by the NDP government has cleared the way for Lyft and Uber, and they're coming to the province. And I think behind the scenes they're now trying to use all the political 
connections they have to persuade the government to back away from this. Yeah. But the government is going to be incredibly embarrassed having set in motion an independent process yeah. if they now have to rein this in and say, wait a minute, yeah, the, the Passenger Transportation Board made a big mistake and we're going to have to second guess like They could do that, I guess, if they wanted. The government seems nervous, Keith. I mean, you've got Ginny Sims, a cabinet minister this week, saying she wants an immediate review of this, that she's shocked that this is happening. She doesn't want to, she's worried about job losses in the taxi sector. What are the chances that the government blinks on this in, in any way? Well, I think the one thing they could revisit, and Mike Farmer, the Solicitor General, already has criticized this, that there's no cap on the number of uh, taxi uh, ride-hailing uh, services, ride-hailing drivers. Right. That may be revisited. I mean, you've got, you've got a cabinet minister criticizing that. You've got another cabinet minister, Ginny Sims, being upset about When cabinet ministers are upset about a government policy, uh, there is a chance those policies can be revisited. But the overall, the decision's been made. It's coming in. Uh, I was surprised that there's no, basically no boundaries in Metro Vancouver for this. So two things can happen. One, they could revisit the cap issue. Two, they could revisit the the fact that boundaries remain for the taxi industry. That may be changed as well. But I think the basic, the basic decision has been made. Ride hailing is coming in. Okay, real quick, Vaughn, then we'll take a few phone calls here in the open line. Do you think the liberals are kind of secretly happy sitting on the sidelines watching the taxi companies now threaten the NDP with recall campaigns? I mean, the liber- <laughs> I think the liberals are kind of enjoying that. Uh, they they have to be, you know. They yeah. spent five years caving to the taxi yeah. industry, yeah. and they're now t- hoping that the industry can do the same to the NDP. But you pointed it out this week. The Passenger Transportation Board did just what a legislature committee recommended, right. yeah. and the cabinet appoints the board. Right. These are NDP appointees that, that double-crossed the industry. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Remo in Kamloops. Hi. Hello. Yeah, well, I'm, um, I'm in a U-Haul leaving D.C. because this province destroyed me financially with all this liberalism and NDP running it. And, you know, you can't make it here anymore. They, it, it's and we need some conservativeness in this province. What what did the government do that hurt your business? Okay, well, they passed a law stating now in limo industry that we have to have a babysitter in the back end. I mean, a human being that's paid for in the back end of a limousine to monitor you to make sure you're not drinking and wearing your seatbelt. He's got to have taxi host license. He's got to have first aid. He's got to have all well, this Well, that's stuff. because we've had some tragedies with these party buses in the past. I understand that, but the fact of the matter is they completely destroy the industry. Why does one person speak for a whole industry in this country? Okay, okay, Remo, thanks for calling in. Well, Vaughn, you know, the Achilles heel of this government might be any kind of perception that they're hurting business with, with taxes or anything else. Your thoughts? Yes, although that certainly hasn't shown up in either the economic growth or the unemployment or the budget surplus numbers yet. Now, we may get a little bit of an alarming report from the finance ministry when they release the quarterly financial in early September. But the first two years of John Horgan government, the economic numbers have been pretty good. Yeah, the, well, the rumblings around here is that the quarterly report may not be quite as rosy as the government hoped for when they tabled its budget in the spring. So we're going to be looking at those numbers, particularly the revenue numbers to the government. Uh, BC Central One Credit Union has forecast a, a bit of a slump in the BC economy going forward. 
Uh, not a huge one, but you know the, the the days of steady economic growth may be uh, not coming to a close, but certainly per- perhaps taking a time out, and that may have a, an impact on Horgan and the NDP's popularity. Let me let me ask you about another topic that was uh, in the news this week, Vaughn, and that's ICBC and the rate reforms that we've we've seen brought in, the new rate structure officially kicking in on Sunday, um, but some people get, seeing it on their renewals for ICBC right now. You've got the Liberals and Andrew Wilkinson kind of hinting they might go to privatization on uh, auto insurance. You got the the union at ICBC launching a, a public information and an advertising campaign warning people against the dangers of privatization. Is this a big issue in the going forward? I think it's a big issue because people are looking at really two rate increases working together starting in September. There was a rate increase April the first, and then there's a change in the structure of rates. So people are seeing significant increases if they're renewing on the 1st of September. But I would point out that we've had big changes of government in the past. Uh, We got social credit in 75. We got the Liberals come in in 2001. And even though they were both critical of ICBC before they got into power, they left it alone. They kept it the way it is. I have my doubts that uh, the Liberals will, well, they, maybe they will risk it politically this time. But in the past, there's been a lot of bad-mouthing of ICBC by parties other than the NDP. But we've seen when they get in power, ICBC survives. Yeah, I think uh, I'd be surprised the Liberals actually go the full route and call for privatization. But I do think they're going to make ICBC a bit of an election issue. ICBC, by its own acknowledgement, uh, says that the new rate structure takes effect in September, that more than half the drivers will be better off, 55% or something well, that still means 45% of the drivers out there are going to get a, a kick in the teeth uh, rate hike because yeah. of the two rate hikes Vaughn talked about and also the changes in the rate structure. So if you've got 45% of the electorate upset about something, that's something another political party will try to take advantage of. But privatization, I don't think it'll go that far. Guys, it's been fun. Let's do it again. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it a lot. Let's do it again. All right. That is Keith Baldry from Global TV's Legislative Bureau Chief, Vaughn Palmer, columnist at the Vancouver Sun. That is your cutting edge of the ledge. It comes to almost $500 million a year uh, is how much uh, the economic cost of that uh, unexplained difference is. All right. Welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for semi today. That's the voice of the... uh, Chair of the BC Utilities Commission, David Morton, who just released this report into high gas prices in British Columbia. And you heard in that clip you just played, he talked about a $500 million a year economic cost to British Columbia from high gas prices. He said that there is a difference of 13 cents a liter in the price of gas in southern British Columbia compared to other places around the Pacific Northwest. He says that is unexplained. Uh, He also uh, talked about the, uh, he also said there was no evidence of collusion or cartel behavior. But he also said that there is, it does look like the pricing behavior is choreographed. In his word, let's get some instant analysis now with Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, yes, yeah, what jumps out at you here? Well, that what jumped out at me was this, uh, his acknowledgement that they, for all the evidence they compile, all the briefs they got, there remains a mystery of this thirteen cents a liter. They can't account yeah. why that price is so much different than elsewhere in the Pacific Northwest. Found no collusion. Uh, found. Um, 
said the challenges to to writing the ship here are significant. He talked about potentially more refining capacity. He says that's got all sorts of problems with that as well. Um, seem to give short shrifts to new regulations. So I don't think we're that further ahead necessarily on explaining the mystery of why gas costs what it does. And keep in mind, as we talked about before earlier in the show, uh, taxes were off the table here, as was government regulation. Interesting, they did bring up he did bring up uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline about how the allocation of the fuel in that pipeline changed in 2015 and raised the specter that a new pipeline might allow more uh, more capacity, but he said that's not guaranteed. Just because you have another pipeline, he went out of his way to say that doesn't mean, that doesn't guarantee there's more more supply to be brought into Metro Vancouver. Again, it depends on the allocation in that pipeline. So again, the mystery remains a mystery, uh, but he uh, found no collusion or gouging. No collusion. Sound like Donald Trump. No collusion here. This is interesting, though, Keith, because this whole thing started when Premier John Horgan said, these greedy gas companies, they're gouging you, right? I mean, they're gouging mm-hmm. you at the gas pump, and that's why he called this public inquiry. Now you get this report saying there's no evidence of collusion, but this unexplained price difference still hanging out there. Does this now create some pressure on Horgan now that he's done this whole public inquiry to actually do something about this you know could the government step here and regulate gas prices well if, if prices go up to where they were when when this whole thing started when it was a big issue with consumers then perhaps you may see the government step in with more some sort of regulatory uh, well is it, there's pressure on him to do something now isn't it i mean he's kind of raised public expectations he's going to do something well, I don't know. I mean, every all the commentary associated with this inquiry from me, from you, from our colleagues who've been covering this was that we didn't have any expectations for this thing, that we didn't think this was going to lead to a price reduction. I think people view this, view the price of gas in very cynical terms. I don't just because this commission found there was no collusion. I don't think a lot of people out there necessarily think that these uh, oil companies operate with uh, ethically pure kid gloves. I think uh, there's well, some suspicions of what's going on. Well, yeah. I mean, there, one of the things that jumped out at me was he said there was no evidence of collusion or evidence of cartel behavior, as he put it. But he also said that when these prices move erratically like this, sometimes going up quite dramatically, he said it's also possible the pricing behavior is choreographed. Yes, choreographed. His word. Yeah, that was very interesting. He chose his words very deliberately, I think. Yeah. Uh, the choreograph jumped out at me as well. Uh, but again, this uh, he hit upon this 13 cent a liter mystery, which I do find that's the one thing that I didn't I don't think we saw going into this thing. The acknowledgement yeah. they can't figure out why the price of gas is 13 cents higher than than okay. what should it should be considering the evidence that they got. Okay, thanks for coming on. All right, mate. That's Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News, here with his uh, hot take there, instant analysis on this report. There's no evidence to suggest collusion among the retail operators exists, nor is there evidence of cartel behavior. However, we, the panel refrained from suggesting that the BC retail market is performing optimally. Rather, we observed that prices move up and down in a manner that gives the appearance of a functioning competitive market. But it's also possible this pricing behavior is choreographed, and there are numerous price changes throughout the day. All right, welcome back to the show. This is David Morton, chair of the BC Utilities Commission, uh, talking about the report just out in this hour 
of the high gas prices in British Columbia. This follows the public inquiry ordered by Premier John Horgan. I think that was kind of the money clip you just heard there, where he talks about no evidence of collusion or cartel behavior by the gas companies you heard him say there. But then do you hear what he said there at the end? He talked about how prices move up and down, and he said it's possible this pricing behavior is choreographed. What an interesting uh, choice of words there. He's not saying no evidence of collusion, but maybe the pricing behavior is choreographed. What is the government going to do about this now? Let's get some analysis now with Dan McTagg, longtime gas industry watcher, gasbuddy.com. Dan, thanks for coming on. Good to be here, Mike, and uh, did this 21 years ago. Uh, Wrote the book, literally. Yeah, you're getting deja vu here. What are your thoughts from what you heard here this morning? Well, it's by sort of bits and pieces. Uh, please understand, it's the worst day possible for a father with five kids to going to university. It's a moving day, so uh, I'm happy <laughs> to do this inside out in uh, in half-strip apartments here. What I do know is that, of course, there is no collusion or conspiracy. Uh, there never was, and uh, that's really a bit of a red herring. I think the issue is whether or not uh, prices are arrived at competitively. And the only way you can really make an analysis on that is to look at all aspects of gasoline. Now, in all due respect to the BCUC, their hands were tied. They're not allowed to look at taxes, and they're certainly not allowed to look at the low-carbon fuel requirement, uh, boutique refuel requirement. So I was listening in and heard uh, the commissioner uh, or the head of the utilities, Mr. Morton, give comments about 13 cents that he can't account for. He, right. you know, That falls almost perfectly into line with what I had been saying three, four, five months ago, that there, the cost of low-carbon compliance and the cost of regulation, the cost of, of making these things happen to a camp, to a to a, uh, a producer into the market, is anywhere between eight and fifteen cents a liter. He's averaging thirteen or ten in certain the north, or six in the north, and thirteen elsewhere. However, he came to the decision. The reality is, he's not permitted to look at that. He should have been able to look at that. And uh, in the very first sentence, the very first you know, paragraph line of uh, Horgan's uh, permission to give this uh, BCUC a look. He said he would have a thorough, uh, open uh, review of, the, of gas prices. Clearly, that isn't the case, and it's unfortunately this is only half done. I said this this morning on several other media. My fear is that they're going to come to a conclusion that they can't possibly look at all aspects of uh, the makeup of gasoline prices, and therefore they're going to leave uh, far more questions uh, than answers, including there are 13 mystery cents that they're talking about per liter. Right. I can answer that, but it looks like Mr. Horgan and the government and the BCUC was, was prevented from okay. being able to come forth with that. Okay, so you're saying that this mysterious 13% extra 13%. that we're paying, 13 cents a liter, you're saying that's due to the province's low-carbon fuel standard? It has an effect, an impact, and uh, it's not it, because we have a boutique gasoline here in British Columbia. And I don't care if we import one percent or twenty percent uh, from Alberta or from uh, from uh, Washington State. You're asking another jurisdiction to make your gasoline at a standard that isn't the regular standard. So there's a cost, there's a premium to that. Now I haven't heard the whole, I haven't had a chance to read the entire study or hear the whole. Uh, presentation, uh, but I'm going to say right from the top, from what little I've heard on the six, on the 13 cent, that's what's missing, and the reason it's missing is because your premier John Horgan shortcut the ability for that commission to look into a what? full uh, efforts of the uh, what's costing gasoline prices to be so high. He also said that there is no evidence 
of collusion or cartel behavior, as he put it. But he also said, and this really jumped out at me, and we just played it, that prices move up, up and down, and it's frustrating for consumers. And he said it's possible this pricing behavior is choreographed. What does that say to you? Well, what it says to me is some, because I've been predicting prices accurately in Vancouver for decades, uh, and when there is a big increase, as I did yesterday here with your colleague, Jen Brown, uh, saying there would be a three-cent increase today, a two-cent increase tomorrow, possible one-cent increase. The reason I know that is that the only competition you see, the wholesale price is pretty much the same. And there is a very transparent market, which the commissioner has pointed out. Uh, but when he's talking about choreograph, what he's really referring to is in the morning, as in this morning, it's $1.52.9. By this evening, it will drop as much as $0.12 cents a litre to $1.39 to $1.40.9. That choreographing is just retailers getting rid of their retail margin. There is no other real movement other than maybe the odd discount that big players get. But if the commissioner had wanted to go deeper, I would have certainly been willing to do that. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the uh, I'm not so sure that a uh, commission that didn't have the ability to look at all aspects well, I of think, gasoline was I, worth I, the time. Well, I think the word choreographed would suggest to most people that it's, uh, it's a dance we're seeing here that's coordinated by different dance partners. So almost like these gas companies are working together to set their prices. Isn't that what it suggests yeah, to you? Uh, yeah, look, no, the wholesale prices, I think, pretty much determined the night before. And you can see that uh, pretty... If the uh, commission wants to take the time to look at gasoline prices, all they have to do is know the wholesale rack price posted by Shell, Esso, yeah. Patrick Hen, and, of course, uh, Parkland every day. It's, pretty, it's, it's publicly posted. Add the taxes to it, and that's your wholesale price. Okay. I'm talking to Dan McTagg, GasBuddy.com. A longtime gas in, gas price analyst, he also talked Dan about the Trans Mountain pipeline, and there's been a lot of suggestion that if we built this pipeline with the additional capacity, it could help increase supply of refined fuels here in the Lower Mainland and maybe reduce gas prices. He said that well, maybe that's not not the case because he said that the price is set by the Pacific Northwest spot price and that an expanded pipeline really wouldn't make much of a difference. Your thoughts? It would, in fact, be very different. Um, Edmonton would become the effective swing player, not uh, Washington State. Whether it's 4 or 40% that comes from Washington State, if the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion on line one increased by 50,000 barrels of gasoline a day, in other words, building it'd be like building another Parkland refinery there in Burnaby, you can pretty much assure that the price, the rack price in Edmonton, would be far more uh, would be far more effective. But he did point out something that I thought everyone has to know because it's true across Canada. Whether you're in Toronto, whether you're in Montreal, whether you're in Winnipeg, whether you're in Edmonton, the spot markets in the Pacific Northwest, Chicago, and New York Harbor are the uh, re- relevant markets. Those are the ones in which we price off. Why? Because your price differential is such that it becomes less expensive wholesale. There's nothing stopping from Americans with a 10 times the market from coming north of the border and buying up our gasoline. So that's something I think you have okay. to put perspective on everything he's saying. Okay, let me ask you this. He, he also talked sure. about, well, what could government do about this to, to have cheaper gas here? He said, well, one thing that's possible is to build a refinery. I'm not sure that's going to happen. But he also talked about the possibility that the government could step in and regulate prices. They could directly tell the, these companies what price to set. I think this creates some pressure on Horgan to do something like that. He's, he's suggested in the past he's not willing to go there. Your thoughts? 
Well, it doesn't work in the Maritimes. Um, and worse, uh, if you are doing so to bring prices somehow down, because that's what I think people think by regulation. Yeah. Regulation gives you false sense. It'll be basically cementing into place those prices. And depending on how extensive the regulation is, like in Nova Scotia, there is no more of that in the morning, $1.52, and in the evening, $1.40. It's always $1.52. So if you like paying these high prices and you want them cemented into place, because I'm telling you the market, because the only real point the commission has made is about that 13 cents without its ability to really find out why that 13 cents is is there. It was literally prevented by the Horgan government from saying, you know, you, we, we want to know more about your uh, clean fuel standards, your low carbon emission. What is the impact? And every single uh, I, I've only seen a few of the oil companies have given their submissions. That was a while ago. Said, guys, right. that's the reason there's a price differential compared to Washington State and compared to uh, any other jurisdiction. Okay, what can the government do about high gas prices in BC then? What can Horgan do about it? Transparency. Break down the cost of everything. Sit down with what the BCUC has learned, provided, of course, it doesn't reveal information that's confidential to a particular company. Break it down and say, this is the cost of everything. We know our taxes are the following. We know the cost of compliance for the low-carbon fuel and the clean fuel standards is the following. We know that the wholesale price is uh, set in Seattle, is uh, in Washington State, the Pacific Northwest, is the following. And here's the Edmonton number. You do the math. That's how I was able to go after my own government as a liberal back in 1998 and make substantial changes to great, creating great amount of transparency. I think what we need to do is have a settlement of the facts. Let the market and let the public chew this around. Let's Before we go okay. to the stupidity of regulation, let's get the, the facts and figures out there, all of them, not just the okay. ones Mr. Horgan has suggested to be the only subject for, uh, for review. Thank you for coming on. Mike, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having okay, me. Okay, I appreciate it. Dan McTagg, he's a longtime gas industry analyst. He's a former MP, as you heard him mention there toward the end. Cell phones in the classroom. Now, in Ontario, the Ontario government has now brought in a province-wide ban on kids using cell phones during class. No more cell phones at class time. There will be some exceptions for this Ontario rule. If it's part of the lesson plan, if the teacher says, I want you to use your phone for some reason as part of a lesson plan, special needs kids who may have to use their phone or for medical purposes. Beyond that, though, a cell phone ban in Ontario public school classrooms. Should we do the same thing right here in B.C.? Let's talk to a man in the front lines here of the education system, Matt Westfall. He's a high school teacher. He's also the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Matt, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me, Mike. Uh, do you find that it's a problem at times with kids in class uh, fooling around with their phones during class time? It absolutely is. In fact, many of my high school colleagues would say it's a constant battle in, cl- in schools. Yeah, I mean, even though, I mean, what, is the, what are the rules here in British Columbia? I guess it, I guess it varies from school to school and whether, on how kids can use phones. That's right. Some schools can make different rules from other schools. And also, it's also up to the teacher. They can make their own classroom rules about what is acceptable or not. And those can range anywhere from never or, yes, we are going to incorporate them into our learning and use them. So the teacher has a fair bit of discretion. But the challenges can be with enforcing the, whatever rules they set. Right, right. What, what's been the experience for yourself in the classroom over the years? Uh, the experience is that cell phones cause a huge distraction for students. Yeah. It, it's almost impossible for them not to look at their phone if a message comes in. Because don't right. forget that for teenagers, often the most powerful motivator for them and the thing that is most important is what does their peer group think? 
So, and yeah. there can be real social costs. If people are messaging you and you don't respond, then people get angry. And there could be things going on there online on social media that you don't know about. And then there could be a real price to pay for that. So there's all kinds of pressures on students to use their phones. So does that leave you as the teacher now constantly telling these kids, put your phone away? Yes. And <laughs> the challenge can be you can try different things. You can talk to them. You talk to their parents. You can take take the phone away and until the end of class. But I had the experience at my former school where people were talking about this problem and the administration essentially said, if you take a student's phone and anything happens to it, we are not backing you up. So we oh. recommend that you not oh. do it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, what about, uh, you mentioned how kids are so engaged in social media now and it's it's just almost like constant. Uh, do you got concerns around that, like around cyberbullying and, and other sort of stuff that happens online? It's a huge concern because you can never escape it. Uh, and it could be happening right in the middle of class and the teacher may have no sense that that is actually going on. Yeah. Uh, and it's, so it's, the phones can be a tool and a mechanism for the bullying. They can also almost be a motivator for it, such as the desire to get a really good video that you can share with your friends. And that can have horrible results when students mm. uh, get so immersed in that. And the food phone is a powerful tool. It can be used for good things, but also some really harmful things. Yeah, sure. I mean, speaking of videos, I mean, do you ever have situations where kids are kids are taking videos in class? Yes, taking videos of each other or of the teacher or making recordings. And then those could then be modified or manipulated and then shared out on, on through Snapchat or other social media as a way of harassing the teacher. So it, be, it becomes actually a workplace health and safety concern for us as well as a privacy concern. Okay, speaking to Matt Westfall, he's a high school teacher. He's president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Okay, Matt, we see what Ontario has done. They've brought in a province-wide ban on cell phone use by students in the classroom. Do you think BC should do the same thing? I think we should consider it. Uh, but there's going to be limits to what any ban can achieve because you, it's one thing to say they're not allowed. It's quite another to actually enforce that because all those pressures that I mentioned are still going to be there. And I would also say that there's a wide range of viewpoints among teachers about cell phones in the schools, ranging everywhere from this is the bane of, bane of my existence, please get them out of here, yeah. all the way to I, these actually re-enrich the learning, I like them, and we need to teach students how to use them responsibly. Okay, that's very interesting. How could a teacher potentially use, uh, use a cell phones in a classroom setting, in, a, in a, like a lesson, lesson setting? Uh, there are a few different ways. One is yeah. sometimes you could do an online quiz where students can log into it and then let's ask questions and it displays on the screen to, to show right. you get the, what, the, what the class is saying. They can be used as a way to look up information. Some students will use them to type out work, like, although it's certainly not a very good tool for doing an essay and often it's a substitute for the fact we actually don't have enough technology for everyone in terms of having mm -hmm. enough access to computers or to tablets or other, other things. So sometimes it's a way to make up for the lack that we don't, don't really have enough technology yeah. there. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, interestingly enough, in Ontario, where they brought in this ban, there are exceptions. So the, one of the exceptions is if the teacher decides that the teacher wants the kids to use their cell phones as part of a lesson plan. So there are exceptions in, into how it works. I was talking to my son about this uh, the other day. He goes to a public high school here in BC, and he said, Dad, we already got like pretty much a cell phone ban at our school. Like you're not allowed to use your phone during class. That's kind of the policy at his school. So it seems to vary from school to school, right? But do you think if they brought in a province-wide ban, if, if the provincial government put their foot down and say, look, we're going to do like Ontario said, province-wide ban on cell phones in class, 
maybe that would help to get the message through to through to kids and to teachers, and that's the way it's going to be. I think the ban would be helpful to put some teeth into it if we really want yeah. to restrict it so that we can have more deeper, intense focus on things, which cell phones don't really help. Uh, at the same time, protecting the, the ability and the autonomy of teachers to decide, look, f- for a good educational purpose, I want to incorporate this, that they can still do that within those limits. Yeah, because... You know, he tells me, well, there's a ban. You're not allowed to look at your phone during class. And so I said to him, well, do kids still do it? <laughs> he said, of course they do. You yeah. know, they're always doing it. And, and yeah, as long as we have phones in the schools, which is going to be inescapable, whatever the policy is, you're going to have to take the good with the bad. Uh, so all, all we can do is try to have conversations, I think, as a school community and with students to try to help reinforce why we are sometimes using it and why we sometimes are not. Because the fact is, as human beings, we actually are not good at multitasking. We think we are, but we're not. And when you're constantly flipping between things, and I I do this myself, and I only had a smartphone when I got was 42 years old. And uh, so there's a real, there's a real price to be paid in terms of your ability to focus and what you can actually learn and accomplish. That, That just occurred to me, Matt, what about the teacher? Like if you had a cell phone ban on using cell phones in class, do you think that should apply to the teacher too or just to the students? Well, there already are rules, uh, workplace rules about teachers using cell phones for personal things within school time. Okay. Uh, and certainly as a teacher, if you want to have a rule for students, you really need to model it and uh, apply it yourself yeah, as well. Right. My guest, Matt Westfall, he's a high school teacher. In Surrey, he says, maybe we should consider it and bring in a similar provincial ban on cell phones in class. Matt, have you ever caught a kid using a cell phone to cheat on a test? Yes. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah, no, it's... it just makes it that much easier for students to, to cheat that way. And it... I mean, not that cheating is anything new, but absolutely they can be used for that. Okay, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to open the phone lines now. I got open call. I got open lines right now. If you want to call me up, if you, your thoughts on this, should we have a cell phone ban in BC classrooms? I'd love to hear from BC teachers, high school students, recent grads. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Star 9898. Toll free on your cell. Stephen Burnaby. Hi. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. You know, I might sound like an old old codger. I'm over 50 here. But, you know, I, I don't do Snapchat or Facebook or all these other things. And, and even at that, I find my cell phone incredibly distracting. I couldn't imagine trying to be in class. Class is six hours long. You know, kids have to learn focus and concentration, and, and they should be able to last six hours. And I would make it a ban because the other part, too, is if you leave it up to the teacher, you know, if the teacher is getting hassled and bullied by the kids and they want to seem, you know, nice to the kids and, and join in, they'll just let the kids do it. So, you know, this way the teacher can say, hey, it's not my decision, it's the school district. And, and you know, we have to be mm-hmm. able to focus. You know, we used to be able to read books. And, you know, this cell phone stuff, it's just happened in the last 10 years. And, you know, do we have to change, you know, a thousand years of what we've done for the last five years or 10 years. I mean, it's, okay. it's great for the cell phone companies. I mean, I'm going broke paying for data. You know, I got three <laughs> kids. Yeah, no, I hear you. No, I, I'm in the same boat. Steve, uh, or Steve thank you for the call. Uh, Matt, what do you think about that? I mean, his, his thought that maybe kids can kind of pester a teacher and pressure, pressure the teacher to let them use phones. Do you think that happens? Yeah, it certainly can. I think yeah. if, where it's just up to the teacher choice, if you're one of the only teachers who doesn't and everyone else does, absolutely yeah. the students could bring pressure. Of course, you're, you have the ability to just say, well, that's fine for them, but in my classroom, this is how it goes. Do you but, think, yeah. 
do you think kids, as Steve said, are having trouble focusing on the task at hand, getting their work done, focusing on the lesson because of technology, because of the cell phone? Yes, uh, because it's right. It's, it's like you get every time you look at the phone, you get an instant hit. You know, of, yeah. of energy. There's some stimulation. There's something else happening. Particularly if what's going on in class you don't really like, but even if it is, uh, so it's it's going to cause students to be dragged away continually throughout the class, and it's very hard to focus on any of the one of the things that are going on. Okay, Ontario has brought in a province-wide ban on cell phones in public classrooms. There, do you think BC should do the same? Call me on that six zero four. 280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Catherine, hi. Hi. Hi there, what do you How think? Are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm about the same as the other gentleman. I'm 59, don't do any social media either. My biggest problem is I think there should be a ban like Ontario. Yeah. My biggest problem has been hiring kids to help in the summertime filing, and they spend more time on their phones than they do oh. in their work. Oh. I had one person where I literally had to take her phone away at, and give it back to her on breaks and lunches because every time I went in the filing room, she was on her phone. And I think if kids are off their phone, then they'll have a better work ethic when they get out in the real world. Catherine, thanks for the call. Matt, do you think we could start doing a better job in, in school now, preparing kids for the workplace by saying, look, you know, put your, let's get your priorities straight and focus on your work, not your phone? Teachers are certainly trying, trying to say, look, there's a time <laughs> and a place for these things. In here, consider this is like your job and you need to focus on this. And then there's a break and you do, you do something you want to do. Uh, but as Catherine said, that's easier said than done. And I've heard from employers, especially with people with younger workers, where that is a struggle. Uh, and not just younger workers. It, like I said, I can find myself getting distracted very easily by a cell phone and social media. Let's go to Joe in Vancouver. Hi, Joe. What do you think? Hey, guys. Um, yeah, I've got a teenager in high school, and I really wish they would just ban the phones for a couple of reasons. One, they'll pay more attention in class. But also, if you do it as a universal ban, then it takes away the social pressure like, all the kids aren't going to be on their phones during class hours. You can't single out one or the other and say, hey, why aren't you on, you know, loser, you're not on your phone, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you just, you do it as a blanket policy, and, you know, maybe they'll actually pay attention in class. Okay, Joe, thanks for that call. Let's squeeze in one more. Derek in Nanaimo, hi. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. What do you um, think? Well, I support it because there's so much bullying and harassment that goes on over social media these days, yeah. that when kids are in class, they can be being bullied from another student in another class during the day. And if that isn't a distraction to their learning, I, I don't know what is. Okay, so. thank, thank you for that, Derek. I think you uh, really made a good point on that one, Matt, earlier about the bullying and the, uh, that we see online, which I think is a real challenge for kids these days. Matt, good luck going back to school. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That is Matt Westfall. He's a high school teacher in Surrey. He's the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Read these gas prices there. Let's not fool ourselves. The government loves high prices because the higher the price, the more tax they can collect per liter. So they're not about to go and say, gee, we'll have to lower the price per liter because they'll be losing tax money on that. So the government is in the tax business. So the higher everything is, the more they love it. All right, this is Mike Smith in for Simi Sarah today. That's just one of the calls we got on our buzz line today after this report out earlier in the day. The public inquiry into gas prices uh, by the BC Utilities Commission. The report found a significant unexplained difference 
of 13 cents per liter in southern BC. Commission Chairman David Morton says the price of gas in Metro Vancouver is higher than what it should be. He said the higher price differential cannot be explained by economic theory or justified by known factors in the market. How much is this costing the BC economy? Almost $500 million a year from high gas prices. That's according to this report out today. Morton, however, said they found no evidence of collusion among retail operators for gasoline or evidence of cartel behavior. Let's get the government's response on this now. Bruce Ralston is British Columbia's Minister of Jobs, Trade and Technology. I'm pleased you could take some time for us today. Hi, Minister. Thanks for coming on. No problem. No problem. What do you? What do you? What's your? What's your hot take in this report? What do you think? Well, I think you've you've set it out there. I think the important distinction in the first number that's the wholesale price. So that's where the uh, the commission has said that uh, there is a, a a price difference of of uh, thirteen cents that is completely unexplained. Other than, uh, and he goes on to say that um, the, it, the the market, the wholesale gasoline market, is not truly competitive, but it's better described as a, as an oligopoly, which is a big word, but generally means a state of a limited competition where the market is dominated by a small number of producers. So that's that's the unexplained difference that by by. By the virtue of the, the big, the five uh, producers that uh, control the market, that's uh, the additional price that they're getting at the wholesale right. level. But right. the comment that you made about no collusion is a comment about the retail price. And what uh, the uh, you know, the chair of the board said is, in the retail, you, you know, you look down the road, you can see what your competitor is doing, and. Um, Sometimes uh, it has the appearance of maybe being a competitive market at the retail level, um, but it also could be choreographed. He goes on to say that they weren't able to come to a firm conclusion. I mean, British Columbia at the retail level is paying more uh, than the rest of Canada as well. But because of some problems in the statistics that they had available to them, they couldn't come to a firm conclusion. But I think the big news is that at the wholesale level, um, we're, we're paying more here in British Columbia, and as people go to the pumps this weekend, uh, getting ready to travel on the long weekend, right. they, uh, they can, uh, I think they might now know and agree that they're being gouged. Uh, they're, they're paying more, and you mentioned the total figure. That's their calculation of the total cost to British Columbians over the course of a year, an extra $500 million bucks are going to uh, those companies and uh, out of the pockets of British Columbians. Okay, where is your evidence that they're being gouged? I mean, I heard you say earlier today as well that you believe that BC drivers are getting ripped off. Where, where's the where's your proof of that? Well, the the, the there there is no explanation for in any market terms for that thirteen cents. Um, there's a difference of price. The price is uh, the reference price is by industry agreement uh, set at the price in the Pacific Northwest. It's a, a 20 cent difference between uh, the Seattle price and the Lower Mainland price. They say um, uh, five, uh, seven cents of that is explained by the uh, transportation costs, uh, the cost of uh, 
converting to a Canadian, the federal fuel standard and the provincial fuel standard. They, it was five cents in 2015. Inflation has made it seven cents uh, of that 20 cents. So there's an unexplained difference of 13 cents that the companies what? are getting uh, by virtue of their their monopoly position or their what about, monopoly position. What about the BC government's clean fuel standard? So you've got a low carbon fuel standard here in British Columbia. The fuel has to be different according to the carbon intensity of the fuel in our own province. That obviously adds to the cost of it. Could that be the explanation? Yeah, perhaps my, uh, I, I, maybe I didn't explain it too clearly. Um, uh, of that, there's a 20 cent differential between the, the Seattle price, the Pacific Northwest price, and the lower mainland price. The commission can account for uh, some of that um, by virtue of the fact that uh, there's transportation costs and yeah. the necessity to conform with there's a federal fuel standard, the anti-corrosion, uh, and a provincial fuel standard, the one that you're talking about, the low carbon. So that that was originally back in 2015. It was five cents. They added on two cents because of inflation. So deduct the seven from the 20, and you've got an unexplained 13 cents that's not explained by taxes in any could, way at all. Could it be that the cost of the low-carbon fuel standard is is more than what you're saying? Like, I've heard some estimates that maybe the the cost impact of a low-carbon fuel, low fuel standard in B.C. could be as high as, like, 15 cents a litre. Well, I don't know where that would come from. This is from the Utilities Commission. It's an independent body that uh, uh, analyzed this uh, whole thing in, in some considerable detail, also got confidential pricing information from the companies involved. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I would rely and do rely on the findings okay. of the commission, not on some speculation about maybe it's higher from some undisclosed source. Okay, what are you going to do about it? We're, pay, we're paying too much for your, our gas. You think we're getting ripped off? What, do you, what is your government going to do about that? Well, today is the, is the release of the report, and, and uh, I think what the Premier set out to do was to uh, provide the public with a common set of facts uh, and, and from this independent body. They do make some uh, recommendations, which will, be, uh, will, which will be considered, but the focus will be on transparency uh, in order to figure out and, and let the public know what the sources of these costs are. And secondly, the possibility, and this is not a certainty, this would have to be considered, and it has not, no decision has been taken at this point, some kind of regulation as well. So the, the government is not ruling out stepping in to regulate gas prices in B.C., is that accurate to say? Well, um, you know, the Premier back in opposition did introduce a number of private members' bills. There are a couple of Canadian provinces um, uh, Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, Quebec, which have some form of uh, retail price regulation. They set boundaries for the prices. That will be something that we will be considering. But, but the, I think the big news out of this out of this report is the wholesale price that unexplained 13 cents a liter before any taxes go on. This is nothing to do with taxes. It's 13 cents going to those five uh, market players. Okay, your your own government had an internal report last year, Minister, that talked about possible regulation of gasoline prices, and it said, quote, while the regulation of gas prices provides some price stability, research does not show it leads to lower prices for consumers. 
unquote. That's from a, a report to your own government. I, I've heard the premier be, be uh, I thought it sounded like he was ruling out regulation of gas prices in some of his earlier comments, but now it sounds like you're maybe ruling it in as a possibility. Well, um, uh, it, it's not a definite uh, decision uh, in, the, in that sense. It's a part of the recommendations that have come forward uh, from the commission. I think that we are in a different position now in the sense that there is a, a much more exhaustive and uh, in-depth study of both the wholesale market and the retail market. Um, I think the, the focus on the regulation at the retail level uh, is what has been done in other provinces. Um, what could okay. be done at the wholesale level is something that will have to be considered. What about a tax cut? That, that would be a direct and immediate way that your government could give people some relief at the pump here. Would the government consider that? Well, what uh, what Werner Antweiler, who is a professor of economics at UBC, said that would be just a subsidy to the, the gasoline companies. If, if, you, if, if ever, nothing else changes and you cut some tax, the, the companies will keep that. I mean, so... It, How would the companies not, uh, keep it? I mean, they're I'm, not going to lower. They, there's no obligation on them to lower their price. Yeah, but if you lower, if you lower the tax, but if you tax on the gasoline. Yeah, but if you lower the the amount of tax that I'm paying at the pump and that everyone else is paying at the pump, that would be money in my pocket, not in the gas company's pocket. Why don't you cut taxes? Uh, well, because the the market reality, and that's what the professor of economics is saying, is the market reality is that they would not pass on that reduction in tax. They would keep the price at the same level. That's what the market behavior of those companies would be. So, so it, 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 it sounds good to say cut the taxes, and I know this is uh, – the leader of the opposition, Mr. Wilkinson's, uh, you know, sought to the oil companies. Yeah, we'll cut, uh, we'll cut taxes. That money will go straight to the oil companies, not to, not to you, not to me. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate it. That is Bruce Ralston. He's BC's Minister of Jobs, Trade, and Technology.